Section 4 of The House Behind the Cedars This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The House Behind the Cedars by Charles W. Chestnut Section 4 Down the River Neither mother nor daughter slept a great deal during the night of Warwick's first visit. Miss Molly anointed her sacrifice with tears and cried herself to sleep. Rena's emotions were more conflicting. She was sorry to leave her mother, but glad to go with her brother. The mere journey she was about to make was a great event for the two women to contemplate, to say nothing of the golden vision that lay beyond, for neither of them had ever been out of the town or its vicinity. The next day was devoted to preparations for the journey. Rena's slender wardrobe was made ready and packed in a large valise. Towards sunset, Miss Molly took off her apron, put on her slat bonnet. She was ever the pink of neatness. Picked her way across the street, which was muddy from a rain during the day. Traversed the footbridge that spanned the ditch in front of the cooper shop, and spoke first to the elder of the two men working there. "'Good evening, Peter.' "'Good evening, ma'am,' responded the man briefly, and not relaxing at all the energy which he was trimming a barrel-stave. Miss Molly then accosted the younger workman, a dark brown young man, small in stature, but with a well-shaped head, an expressive forehead, and features indicative of kindness, intelligence, humor, and imagination. "'Frank,' she asked, "'can I get you to do something for me soon in the morning?' "'Yes'm, I reckon so,' replied the young man, resting his hatchet on the chopping-block. "'What is it, Miss Molly?' "'My daughter's going away on the boat, and I allowed you wouldn't mind toting her carpet-bag down to the wharf, unless you'd rather haul it down on your cart. "'It ain't very heavy. Of course I'll pay you for your trouble.' "'Thank you, ma'am,' he replied. He knew that she would not pay him, for the simple reason that he would not accept pay for such a service. "'Is she gone for?' he asked, with a sorrowful look, which he could not entirely disguise. "'As far as Wilmington, and beyond. She'll be visiting her brother, John, who lives in another state, and wants her to come and see him.' "'Yes'm, I'll come. I won't need the cart. I'll tote the bag. By what time shall I come over?' "'Well, long about seven o'clock or half-past. She's going on the old North State.' and it leaves at eight. Frank stood looking after Miss Molly as she picked her way across the street, until he was recalled to his duty by a sharp word from his father. "'Tend to your work, boy. Tend to your work. You're wasting your time. Wasting your time.' Yes, he was wasting his time. The beautiful young girl across the street could never be anything to him. But he had saved her life once, and had dreamed that he might render her again some signal service that might win her friendship, and convince her of his humble devotion. For Frank was not proud. A smile, which Peter would have regarded as condescending to a free man, who since the war was as good as anybody else. A kind word which Peter would have considered offensively patronizing. A piece of Miss Molly's famous potato-pone from Rena's hands, a bone to a dog, Peter called it once. 
were ample rewards for the thousand and one small services Frank had rendered the two women who lived in the house behind the cedars. Frank went over in the morning, a little ahead of the appointed time, and waited on the back piazza until his services were required. "'You ain't going to be gone long, is you, Miss Rena?' he inquired, when Rena came out dressed for the journey in her best frock, with broad white collar and cuffs. Rena did not know. She had been asking herself the same question. All sorts of vague dreams had floated through her mind during the last few hours as to what the future might bring forth. But she detected the anxious note in Frank's voice, and had no wish to give this faithful friend of the family unnecessary pain. "'Oh, no, Frank, I reckon not. I am supposed to be just going on a short visit. My brother has lost his wife, and wishes me to come and stay with him a while and look after his little boy.' "'I'm feared you'll lack it better, dear, Miss Rena,' replied Frank sorrowfully, dropping his mask of unconcern. "'And then you won't come back, and none of your friends will never see you no more.' "'You don't think, Frank,' asked Rena severely, "'that I would leave my mother and my home and all my friends and never come back again.' "'Why, no, indeed,' interposed Miss Molly wistfully, as she hovered around her daughter, giving her hair or her gown a touch here and there. She'll be so homesick in a month that she'll be willing to walk home. You would never have to do that, Miss Rena, returned Frank with a disconsolate smile. If you ever want to come home and can't get back no other way, just let me know, and I'll take my mule and my cart and fetch you back, if it's from the end of the world. Thank you, Frank. I believe you would, said the girl kindly. You're a true friend, Frank, and I'll not forget you while I'm gone. The idea of her beautiful daughter riding home from the end of the world with Frank, in a cart, behind a one-eyed mule, struck Miss Molly as the height of the ridiculous. She was in a state of excitement where tears or laughter would have come with equal ease, and she turned away to hide her merriment. Her daughter was going to live in a fine house, and marry a rich man, and ride in her carriage. Of course, a negro would drive the carriage, but that was different from riding with one in a cart. When it was time to go, Miss Molly and Rena set out on foot for the river, which was only a short distance away. Frank followed with the valise. There was no gathering of friends to see Rena off, as might have been the case under different circumstances. Her departure had some of the characteristics of a secret flight. It was as important that her destination should not be known as it had been that her brother should conceal his presence in the town. Miss Molly and Rena remained on the bank until the steamer announced, with a raucous whistle, its readiness to depart. Warwick was seen for a moment on the upper deck from which he greeted them with a smile and a slight nod. He had bidden his mother an affectionate farewell the evening before. Rena gave her hand to Frank. "'Good-bye, Frank,' she said with a kind smile. "'I hope you and Mama will be good friends while I'm gone.' The whistle blew a second warning blast, and the deckhands prepared to draw in the gangplank. Rena flew into her mother's arms, and then, breaking away, hurried on board and retired to her stateroom, from which she did not emerge during the journey. The window blinds were closed, darkening the room, and the stewardess who came to ask if she should bring her some dinner could not see her face distinctly, but perceived enough to make her surmise that the young lady had been weeping. Poor child! murmured the sympathetic colored woman. I reckon some of her folks is dead, 
or her sweetheart's gone back on her, or else she's had some kind of bad luck or another. White folks has their troubles just as well as black folks, and sometimes feels them more, cause they ain't as used to em. Miss Molly went back in sadness to the lonely house behind the cedars, henceforth to be peopled for her with only the memory of those she had loved. She had paid with her heart's blood another installment on the Shylock's bond exacted by society for her own happiness of the past and her children's prospects for the future. The journey down the sluggish river to the seaboard in the flat-bottomed stern-wheel steamer lasted all day and most of the night. During the first half-day, the boat grounded now and then upon a sandbank, and the half-naked negro deckhands toiled with ropes and poles to release it. Several times, before Rena fell asleep that night, the steamer would tie up at a landing, and by the light of huge pine torches she watched the boat hands send the yellow turpentine barrels down the steep bank in a long string, or pass cordwood on board from hand to hand. The excited negroes, their white teeth and eyeballs glistening in the surrounding darkness to which their faces formed no relief. The white officers in brown linen, shouting, swearing, and gesticulating. The yellow flickering torchlight over all made up a scene of which the weird interest would have appealed to a more blaze traveller than this girl upon her first journey. During the day Warwick had taken his meals in the dining-room with the captain and the other cabin passengers. It was learned that he was a South Carolina lawyer and not a carpet-bagger. Such credentials were unimpeachable, and the passengers found him a very agreeable travelling companion. Apparently sound on the subject of Negroes, Yankees, and the righteousness of the lost cause, he yet discussed these themes in a lofty and impersonal manner that gave his words greater weight than if he had seemed warped by a personal grievance. His attitude, in fact, piqued the curiosity of one or two of the passengers. "'Did your people lose any niggers?' asked one of them. "'My father owned a hundred, he replied grandly. Their respect for his views was doubled. It is easy to moralize about the misfortunes of others, and to find good in the evil that they suffer. Only a true philosopher could speak thus lightly of his own losses. When the steamer tied up at the wharf at Wilmington, in the early morning, the young lawyer and a veiled lady passenger drove in the same carriage to a hotel. After they had breakfast in a private room, Warwick explained to his sister the plan he had formed for her future. Henceforth, she must be known as Miss Warwick, dropping the old name with the old life. He would place her for a year in a boarding school at Charleston, after which she would take her place as the mistress of his house. Having imparted this information, he took his sister for a drive through the town. There, for the first time, Rena saw great ships, which, her brother told her, sailed across the mighty ocean to distant lands, whose flags he pointed out drooping lazily at the mastheads. The business portion of the town had an ancient and fish-like smell, and most of the trade seemed to be in cotton and naval stores and products of the sea. The wharves were piled high with cotton bales, and there were acres of barrels of resin and pitch and tar and spirits of turpentine. The market, a long, low wooden structure in the middle of the principal street, was filled with a mass of people of all shades, from blue-black to Saxon blonde, gabbling and gesticulating over piles of oysters and clams and freshly caught fish of varied hue. By ten o'clock the sun was beating down so fiercely 
that the glitter of the white sandy streets dazzled and pained the eyes unaccustomed to it and rena was glad to be driven back to the hotel the travellers left together on an early afternoon train thus for the time being was severed the last tie that bound rena to her narrow past and for some time to come the places and the people who had known her once were to know her no more some few weeks later miss molly called upon old judge Strait with reference to the taxes on her property your son came in to see me the other day he remarked he seems to have got along oh yes judge he's done fine john has and he's took his sister away with him ah exclaimed the judge then after a pause he added i hope she may do as well thank you sir she said with a curtsey as she rose to go we've always knowed that you were our friend and wished us well the judge looked after her as she walked away her bearing had a touch of timidity a shade of affectation and yet a certain pathetic dignity it is a pity he murmured with a sigh that men cannot select their mothers my young friend john has builded whether wisely or not very well but he has come back into the old life and carried away a part of it and i fear that this addition will weaken the structure end of section four recording by james k white chula vista